if we can find a way to experience positive emotions in our work, that makes us more productive, but it also makes us more creative. It makes us less stressed and it generates energy for us that allows us to give more energy to the other important areas of our life outside of our work. Hello, and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times. I'm Isabel Berwick. Productivity is always a popular topic on Working It, and it's easy to see why. After all, this is a podcast about work, and productivity is about how effectively you work. But productivity is also a lot more than that. The less time you waste procrastinating or carrying out dead-end tasks, the more time you have for things that really matter, both in and out of the office. The voice you heard at the top of the show was Ali Abdal. He's a former doctor, an entrepreneur, and one of the world's foremost experts on how to be more productive. Ali has just published a book called Feel Good Productivity, all about how joy can help us do more of what matters to us. I sat down with him to find out more. Yeah, so when I was in in medical school at, at Cambridge University, the only productivity technique I knew was working harder. And you know, I did the grind and the grit and the discipline. But then when I started working full time as a doctor, I realized that the harder I worked, the more miserable and overwhelmed and drained I became. And so I stumbled onto some research in the field of positive psychology that was super interesting around the idea of how if we can find a way to experience positive emotions in our work. That makes us more productive, but it also makes us more creative. It makes us less stressed and it generates energy for us that allows us to give more energy to the other important areas of our life outside of our work. And that's really the philosophy of feel good productivity. If you can find a way to make your work feel good, you're automatically going to be more productive with it, but also you'll just have a happier and more fulfilled life, which is kind of the point as well. I love your focus on, you know, actual research, which I guess is informed by your training as a doctor. It's almost like the antidote to hustle culture. Was that something that you were quite conscious about? Yeah, very much so. I started writing the book in 2020. And that was when I'd just taken a bit of a break from medicine. And I was intending to go to Australia to do emergency medicine as a placement and stuff, but it was the pandemic and Australia had closed their borders. You know, initially for the first few months of the pandemic, there was this thing of like, here's how to be more productive while you're working from home. But very quickly, people realized, hang on, like, what's the point of productivity if it's going to make you miserable? Is this really what I want to do with my life? You know, all of, all of, all of those things. So as I was writing the book, my own journey of like, you know, being quite hustle culture initially <laughs> as I was growing my business and then realizing, hmm, actually... Let's focus on enjoying the journey. All of that bled into kind of the research that I did for the book as well. Can you talk about the role of play in success? Because we've talked about, you know, enjoyment and joy, but play seems to be quite a big part of that. You know, you give the example of the Nobel Prize winners who've attributed some of their achievements to it. What role does play have for you and, and what might it have in the workplace more generally for our listeners? Yeah, so I would say that play is one of the most underrated productivity techniques that there is out there. And there's a really cool story of the Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman. He was a famous physicist back in the day. You know, he was a tenured professor and he'd, he'd done all of the things that led to success, but he was really burned out and he stopped enjoying physics. And in his autobiography, he tells a, a cool story of how one day in the Cornell University cafeteria, he saw some students just like tossing a plate up and down and spinning a plate in the air. And he realized that the, the rate at which the Cornell logo was spinning was different to the way that the inside of the plate was spinning. And he was like, hmm, I wonder what the equations would look like that would model how this plate is spinning. And initially he was like, nah, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be looking into this. It's totally pointless. You know, I'm a, I'm a big deal. I research fancy stuff. I don't research the spinning of plates. 
But he, he realized that the reason he enjoyed physics and got into it initially was because he approached it with that spirit of play and he would just play with it. And he realized that if he just sort of tapped into that sense of play, that sense of lightness and ease that he once had, physics all of a sudden became more fun and he became more productive. And then the equations of that plate spinning ultimately led to the equations that helped him win the Nobel Prize. That spirit of play really brings out our creativity and also boosts our productivity. Is there a particular kind of environment we need for play at work? Because a lot of offices or workplaces aren't really set up for it, are they? I think it's, it's less about the external environment and more about the way that we approach our work. So one of the conditions that you need for play to really flourish is, and it's a combination of two things, it's high engagement and low stress at the same time. So high engagement in that you're, you're actually immersed and genuinely trying at the thing. But the other thing that you need for play is low stakes, low stress. When we are stressed out, when we're in a high stakes, high stress situation, it's very difficult to play. There's a, a phrase by the philosopher Alan Watts that I really like, which is aim to be sincere rather than serious. I think in the workplace, whatever environment we're in, we, we have a tendency to take our work very seriously. It really doesn't need to be that way. <laughs> even, even when it's life and death, like, you know, I've been in operating theaters where they're doing life-saving operations and the best surgeons, they, they have a sense of lightness about them. They have background music, they're cracking jokes every now and then. So even when it is genuinely life and death, approaching your work with that sense of lightness improves your performance. When I read your book, I loved it, but it, it struck me that a lot of people don't have autonomy and choice in what they do at work, you know, or how they spend their time. And it's probably not fun at all. What's your advice for those people? We all have varying degrees of autonomy. Like there are some people who, who have autonomy over the outcome, like autonomy over what specifically they're doing. And that's pretty unusual. That's only like, you know, entrepreneurs and freelancers and stuff. Like you have reasonable amount of autonomy over what you're doing. But for the rest of us who don't, you generally do have autonomy over how you're doing it. So you have autonomy over the process. And you certainly have autonomy over your mindset, the way that you're approaching it. So in terms of the process stuff, you know, when I was, when I was working as a doctor, I didn't really have control over what I did because I was the most junior person on the team and I had to do what I was told. I, I found that, weirdly, I enjoyed weekend shifts way, way more and I was way more energized at the end of them. Which is kind of weird because on weekends, the staffing levels are lower and there's more work and there's less support around. So why was it that on weekends I enjoyed my job more? I realized that it's because on weekends where I didn't have that extra support, I took more responsibility. I took responsibility myself for chasing up blood results and for making sure the patients were all right. Whereas on weekday shifts where there was a whole like crew of seniors and consultants and stuff around, I just wasn't taking that, that much responsibility because it wasn't my job and someone else was taking responsibility. And I found that the more I took responsibility over the things that I could control, the more I enjoyed the job, the more productive I became and the more energy I had. So I think there's something here around even when you don't have control over, the, over what specifically you're doing, you can always choose to take responsibility over how you're doing it, find ways to do it differently, find ways to make it better. And even though it takes energy to do that, it actually generates more energy as a result of you doing it than if you were to just kind of be disengaged <laughs> as I was in my, my first few weeks. So on a related point, you know, you talk a lot about curiosity in the book and about alignment. Can we be productive if we're doing something we don't want to be doing, we're not curious about, we found it boring? Or do we sometimes just have to get on with it? Yeah, unfortunately, sometimes we do, we do just have to get on with it. Um, I would love it if every single thing everyone did was like fun all the time. Unfortunately, that's not how, how real life works. But having said that, we can always find ways to make it just even 10% more enjoyable. I've got a list on my to-do list app that I call Boring Admin. 
And I just let things pile up in the boring admin list. And then when they get to about like five or six items or sometimes 10 or 10 or 12 items, depending on how lazy I'm feeling, I'll have a session which I call an admin party where, where, where I'll just like go to a coffee shop uh, and I'll put on some like Pirates of the Caribbean or Lord of the Rings music in my headphones. And I'll, I'll literally tell myself, I'm, I'm having a party right now, with a party with myself where I'm going through my admin. And it, it, it weirdly makes going through boring admin on a to-do list just that little bit more enjoyable. So, you know, there's always things that we can do. And, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask myself whenever I'm feeling disengaged or drained by my work is, what would this look like if it were fun? If I had to make this just a little bit more fun, what would it look like? And then usually I come up with a, with a few things and, and start applying them. Yeah, I like that. And you have lots of experiments in the book, which, you know, I'm going to try. But how can we be as scientific as possible in figuring out what works for us as we try to shift up our habits? You know, productivity is a deeply personal thing. Like we all have different things that matter to us. We all have different life circumstances. And so the way that I've found best to approach productivity is to just treat ourselves as experimental subjects in a lab. Instead of thinking, you know, this is a guy off YouTube who's telling me to do this, therefore it's the right answer. <laughs> Instead thinking, you know what, I'm going to try this experiment. I'm going to try it for a few days and just see what impact it has. And if it works, great. You've now got a, a tool in your toolkit that you can apply whenever you want. And if it doesn't work, that's also fine. You know, not every experiment will work for everyone, but if there's just like one or two things that someone can take away that actually work for them, that they can apply to their life, that will hopefully make the 15 pounds or whatever the book costs these days uh, absolutely worth it. Sometimes I overcommit and that can be as destructive as planning too little. How do you go about planning things when you're overcommitted, which I think will probably be something that's very familiar to everyone listening to this? When I'm committing to things, I make sure I put them in the calendar rather than in a to-do list. Because the problem with a to-do list is that it's infinitely long. The, the nice thing about a calendar is that it, it is finite and it really lets you see, oh, okay, this is the time I have available this week and next week and the week after. If I want to commit to this thing, I need to find the time for it right now because otherwise it's not going to happen. But the other thing I find is even on the calendar front, it's so easy to look out sort of six weeks, <laughs> six weeks ahead and see, oh my goodness, the calendar is so empty. Of course I can say yes to that thing. Every time I get a new thing that I'm tempted to commit to, because I really struggle to say no, I ask myself, if this thing was happening tomorrow, would I be excited about it? And usually the answer is, oh no, I'm so busy tomorrow. Uh, you know, the calendar is already rammed with other stuff. And then I, I tell myself, well, six weeks from now, it's also probably going to be rammed with other stuff. and I'm going to have exactly the same feeling. So unless it's a hell yeah, unless it's a, oh my goodness, this would be so amazing. I try my best to say no to that particular thing. But obviously, easier said than done. We all have a tendency to overcommit. Maybe part of the problem here is that people are overambitious. So is, is it about breaking stuff down into very small parts? Yeah, to, to an extent. I think there's two things. The, the, the first one is actually we want to limit the number of things we take on. One of the big hurdles for a lot of people is that they, they just have way too many goals. It's very hard to genuinely focus on a large number of things. What I found seems to be the sweet spot of like annual goals, for example, is like three or four. Just like three or four things that you're like, okay, this is going to be a serious goal that I'm going to be working towards. But the other thing is, you know, once we've got the goal, I have a system that that's not in the book, but it's 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 how I think about breaking things down. And, and the, the acronym is GPS, Goal Plan System. What is the goal? What's the plan to getting there? And what is the system that's going to make sure you stick to the plan? You know, the way I think of a plan is, what are the three to five major chess moves that will give you the highest likelihood of completing the goal? Now, the system is every week, how do I make sure I'm just staying on track with the plan? And I find that to be the most helpful way I've come across to break goals down into their parts so that we can actually actually accomplish them. You've given me a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. 
Putting joy at the centre of your work is such a lovely idea. Ali wants to provide people with the tools to live a more productive life. And that's something he has in common with my next guest. Mark Zausanders is a champion of time boxing. I started our conversation by asking him to explain, in a nutshell, what time boxing is. The idea behind time boxing is that you set the time that is going to be available for a particular task. So let's say it's writing a, a blog post. Obviously, you could spend hours and hours, days and days on a blog post, perfecting and perfecting. But it's much more productive and happiness-inducing if you can just fix the time and work to that so that you get a blog done to an acceptable standard in the time frame that works with the rest of your life, the rest of your working responsibilities, rather than going for something which is all singing or dancing and actually never going to be perfect anyway, because that's just impossible to achieve. Fix the time, get the work done as well as you can in that time and move on from there. If something happens, you know, you get distracted, someone calls, one of your kids is ill, how do you get back into the time boxing frame? Do what you can to avoid that in the first place. So that means in the planning session, be realistic. Don't put tasks in when you know that it's more likely that something is going to um, happen and override them. So be a little bit realistic. And then also when you're doing the tasks themselves, if you're starting to run over time-wise, set a midway checkpoint. If you're, you know, if you're ahead, then maybe slow down a little bit, improve the quality. If you're behind, um, speed up, get it done in the in the time. But kids do get sick. Um, accidents do happen. But how often does that actually occur? I mean, we for this podcast were meeting at 11 o'clock, right? We both made it on time. There was a chance that something happened for me or for you and we weren't going to be here. But Isabel, you've done hundreds of these podcasts. How many times has that actually happened? What, that somebody hasn't turned up? Or, I yeah, or you haven't turned up? Uh, a handful, Yeah, I imagine. If that, yes. Exactly. So, um, so although plans can go awry, it's not actually that frequent that they do. And so the planning that you do with time boxing will help in 99% of occasions. So humans are notoriously bad at working out how long it's going to take us to do something. That's one of the key issues in workplaces that people massively overestimate how much they're going to get done. Does time boxing help? Time boxing definitely helps. Time boxing helps with almost everything, um, <laughs> I find. Um, so with, with that, tasks almost always take longer than we anticipate. And the reason for that is that we, we can see the steps that need to be taken to get a task done. What we can't see is the unforeseen surprises. But what you can do with this is rather than planning forward theoretically, you base how long it's going to take on what you've done in the past. Because what's happened in the past incorporates all of the gnarly, random surprises that happen in life. So if you estimate how long it's going to take on the basis of what's happened in the past, it's much more likely to be correct. And then obviously, as you said, over time, you get better and better at it. Do you time box your personal life as well? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, not all of it, and probably less of it than my professional life. But this is probably one of the most important aspects of time boxing. Time boxing really is about intention and living a more intentional life. So if you decide that it's more important for you to spend more time than you do with, say, a niece or an elderly neighbor or, you know, your mom or your dad or an uncle, time boxing that into your calendar at a time when you think 
this is important, that is my intention, and putting that in, making sure that you, you do it. That's a really important way of, or really effective way of living a more intentional life. And, you know, not to overstate it, but if you, over the course of your life, you know, act out the things, your intentions, you know, what more purpose or meaning can you expect or want or hope for? Think about a relationship that you have that you could improve. If you can think of a better way than time boxing of improving that relationship, go ahead with that. Otherwise, try time boxing. So I've got 10 things on my to-do list, so I'm going to transfer them all to my Google Calendar. We'll start with two. (laughs) (laughs) Realistic. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. It's great to talk to you. It's been great to be here. Both Mark and Ali frame their ideas as ways to improve the whole of our lives, not just the parts we spend at work. I'm a firm believer in balancing working and non-working life, whatever method you use to get there. And that balance is a goal worth pursuing. Thanks to Ali Abdal and Mark Zau-Sanders. This episode of Working It was produced by Misha Frankel-Duval and mixed by Simon Panay. Manuela Saragosa is the executive producer and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Thanks for listening. Thank you.